And if you're going to stay with us, let's get Daniel chapter 2 and verse number 5. Daniel 2 and verse number 5. All right, Daniel chapter 2 and verse number 5. We started last week, of course, talking about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And now we're going, we're not going to get to the dream just yet. That'll be several weeks from now, actually. I think most of you know, come December, we have a special schedule. We, uh, we won't have the Bible study hour anymore. And in the next couple of Sundays, you'll have a couple different gentlemen up here to preach for you. So we'll pick up the dream part of this next year. But uh, today we'll, we'll get the preliminary stuff done by God's grace. So verse 5, the Bible says, The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. Uh, this is quite severe. He says in verse 6, But if ye show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and the interpretation. So for those of you maybe that weren't with us already, Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream, but he's forgotten it. It looks as if he's had the dream a couple of years before this. And something has brought it back to the forefront of his mind. He just can't remember the details. And now he wants not only the interpretation, he wants his wise men, his astrologers, his sorcerers, and so forth. Tell me both the dream and the interpretation. Asking a lot. Verse 7, they answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. So they're trying to negotiate a bit. Verse 8, the king answered and said, I know of certainty that you would gain the time because you see the thing is gone from me. So you guys are stalling. You're asking these, you know, negotiating with me. You know you can't live up to it. So you're just stalling, trying to put off the inevitable. Verse 9, but if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Now, that, that's another way of saying that the way things are working in the world, you know, whatever's going on these days, in these times, that general sort of sense. Um, so you guys are trying to come up with a story that would make sense and fit what's happening around us. Verse uh, 9 in the middle, Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. In other words, anybody can come up with let's call it an allegory, uh, an interpretation for an allegory. You tell the story, you can say, well, this means that, and this other thing means that. People do this all the time with the book of Revelation. You really want to see people go at it. The details are there, but then rather than believing that these are futuristic events that are actually going to happen, well, you know, that great red dragon is actually this, and the woman in the sky is actually that, and the locust coming out of the pit is actually something else. Well, how do you know that that's right or not? And usually what they do is find an interpretation that fits whatever's going on in their day and age. Um, I got to thinking about it with this particular dream. Now, you guys, are, you remember what the dream was? I'm just getting a little louder. Is that, the, is that me or is that the mic? Um, there's a head of gold, and then there's the arms and the chest of silver. There's the belly and loins of, of brass and then the legs of iron, then the feet of iron and clay. And then the dream ends with a stone flying through the heavens that was cut without hands, and it flies towards the feet, and it destroys the entire image, right? Now, that's the dream in its totality. 
uh, I got to thinking about that. Knowing the interpretation of it, my mind automatically snaps back to, well, this is what those things obviously mean. But what if you just knew the dream and that's all you heard? I wonder if we could spin it another way. What, what if it meant something like this? This is one figure, right? Because it was. It's one figure, but it is a mixture. Gold, silver, brass, iron, clay. But it's all one figure. This is a mixture. Friends, the message is coming now clear. I know what it is. It's all genders. All 89 of them. That's how many are officially there now. It's a gender spectrum. The 80, there's, uh, it's all genders and races and religions and creeds and every ideology is come together into one. But there is one hard-headed group and they're coming with great speed and they claim to have been sent from heaven which is why in the vision it's the stone cut without hands. They will not allow the world to shape their thinking in any way. They claim to have divine revelation and they're flying with this great anger and vigor towards this image that has finally come together all in one in unity and they are going to destroy the image and if we don't stop these space invaders from... <laughs> If we don't stop these hard-headed people from destroying us, oh, then, then the world is over and this great stone is going to take it. Do, do you see how people could spin it? Right? I mean, now, I don't think that's a very good interpretation. That took me all of a, a minute and a half to come up with yesterday at my desk. But do you see without God stepping in and saying, this is what these things mean? Well, then my interpretation just as good as yours. I mean, how do you know until the thing has come to pass? How do you, how do you know? So we need God to step in. But that's, that's, I think, verse 9 when the king says, I know you guys. You're trying to gain the time. You're, tr you're stalling because you're coming up with lying and corrupt words, something that will make sense based on the times that, in which we live, and then you're going to go on from, from there. Verse 10, the Chaldeans <clears throat> answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. Well, they're right. They're right. I, I don't know, maybe in the history of the world some other king has, but to these guys, to the best of their recollection, no king has ever asked such an unreasonable thing. Tell us a dream you had two years ago. I can barely tell you what I dreamt two hours ago, you know, when I woke up. I don't know. But it, th this is rather ridiculous. He says in verse 11, or they say, it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, let's pause there just for a moment. The king has come to his wise men, right, for just to give them all one term, magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and then political advisors, the Chaldeans. Now, he's asking them to step up and do something great. Why? They claim to be able to do things that, that other mortal men can't. But it's interesting, when put to the test, they go, whoa, whoa, whoa you're asking too much. Now, I'll tell you where I've found that. I, I've found this on occasions, right? I found it in Malawi quite often. I would be out witnessing, handing out tracts, and there's several witch doctors in Malawi. It's quite common to come across one of them. You say, uh, you know, 
they, they'll, they'll say, I, I don't believe in this Jesus thing or that, and I believe in my witchcraft and the sorcery and the uh, ancestors and so forth. I say, okay, well, go ahead. Let's, let's, let's see some. And they say, oh, oh no, not here. Really? So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work here? You got to go somewhere else to do it? Now, you'd say, well, see, that, you know, what do you expect? It's just a witch doctor. Th- then you get a Christian who says, but I have the power to do these wonderful miracles and God has given me this apostolic power and I can, I, I can pray and I can heal anybody. I have the gifts of healing. So, okay. All right, let's see it. Let's go for it. And they go, well, well what's wrong? And I say, listen, my eyes are not great. As you can see, I wear glasses and I, I you know, got some pretty uh, uh, strong prescriptions in here. I said, just one touch, please. I'd love to go without glasses. And I've had him tell me, ah, no, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> what do you mean it doesn't work like that? That is, a, that is precisely how it works. Have you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? That is precisely how it works. You're on the side of the road. I mean, that's where we're at. We're on the road having the conversation and then Jesus would ask the blind men, what will you that I should do unto you? My eyes, sir, please. I mean, this is, I'm not even blind. I'm just getting there. Ah, no, it doesn't work like that. I said, well, what, what, how does it work? Ah, we have to be in the building. You do? What, why, why do you need a, a building? Do you need me to pay the ticket as well? <laughs> is, that, is that how it works? Because often it is, right? We, 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 need time, we need time to get the lighting just right and to get the people set in just a way and get the music set up just right and make it, you know, get the angle just right. Come on, man. I mean, if you have this great claim to be able to tap into the spiritual realm, let's, let's see some of it. Now, that being said, verse 11, you got to admit, even though the wise men in this story are not able to live up to their billing, not even close, the king is also being a, a, a tad, not a tad bit, very ridiculous, right? It's a rare thing, verse 11, that the king requireth. He is being crazy ridiculous with his expectations. Is this true? He is setting the bar so high that, as they've said in verse 11, you're asking something that only the gods could figure out. I mean, you're, you're not being fair to us. And uh, look at what the king is is. Uh, threatening them with, if you don't come through on this crazy, unreal expectation, you will die. And your houses will be made a dunghill. I will destroy not only you, but your family, and you will just be wiped out. Now, every one of us would look at this and go, yo, Nebuchadnezzar, calm down, man. Come on, Blaisdell, what's, what's up with you? I, what, did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? He had a bad dream. I mean, but guys, you got to have reasonable expectations. Otherwise, you're setting yourself up for a very unhappy life, for disaster. Now, you may not be threatening to make people's houses into dunghills, but you could be threatening to end relationships with people. Based on what? Based on your self-imposed ridiculous standard. I'll give you just a few examples of what I mean by this. I used to say this all the time when I was younger as a parent. I'd tell my children, act your age. You know, act your age. Now, I must admit, my daughter, when she was about 14 or 15, my oldest daughter, um, she, she, was, she was very nice about how she pointed this out, but she said, Dad, I don't know what that means. <laughs> 
And I'm glad she finally pointed it out because she said, I've never been, whatever, 14 before. I don't know how a 14-year-old's supposed to act. So you keep saying act your age. I have no idea what that means. And I thought, she's got me on that one. I, that's a great point. I'm, I'm putting this expectation out there that she couldn't possibly understand. And furthermore, if I say, well, 14-year-olds are expected to do this. Really? Every one of them in the whole world? Where is it written like that? Is there a verse in the Bible that says at 14 or at 17, you have to have all these things figured out? I didn't when I was 14. Now, I think what I was trying to say is, you know, be mature. That, that's what I was trying to say. But, but even there, this is deep, right? This is deep. Kids are kids. They're going to act like kids. Now, I'm not saying let them get away with everything. Please, moms and dads, have some control over your kids. When they lack discipline, that is your job to institute the discipline. When they're not able to sit down, be quiet, you know, obey, that's your opportunity to step in and teach. But be patient. Don't, don't have this high expectation that my kids should just automatically know what to do and how to do it, when to do it. They're going to need somebody to teach them and, and get them through that part of life. And too often, right, as parents, our expectations are super high. And when our kids don't live up to those expectations, we fly off the handle, right? And we get super upset and our kids are left a bit frustrated going, but wait a minute, I'm, I'm just a child. I really, I'm just being a child. That's all I'm doing. That's all he or she is guilty of. I'll give you another example. Sometimes we expect our spouses to read our minds. Right? Come in the room, how are you? Why do you ask these kind of questions? What do you think I, how do you think I feel? I don't know. That's why I asked. <laughs> right? How could I possibly have known when you just got home and I just got home? I can't read your mind. Let, let's at least talk about this before you, uh, uh, if you look at verse number 12, for this cause, the king was angry and very furious. He is out of his head upset. But why? Because they're not living up to his ridiculous expectations. Spouses, you're going to need to talk about these things rather than just assuming the other person knows what's already on your mind. I'll tell you another one I think that good to point out with where we're at this morning. You come to church, you know, churches are filled with people. And people are filled with problems. You know, I, I know it'd be lovely, it'd be wonderful if you come to church and everybody in the church was not only a professing but a practicing Christian. Wouldn't that be great if all of us just lived up to all the teachings of Jesus all the time, but especially when we're at church? Wouldn't that be nice if no one was ever rude and we were all hospitable? Wouldn't that be great? It would be. And I, and I say, amen, let's try for that, Right? Let's try for that, but let's also be mindful that if we put that expectation up there so high that, listen, my brother or sister, if he's a Christian, then he ought to, what? Have it all figured out and never mess up? Let, let, let's cut each other a little bit of slack. And, and when we're having a bad day or we don't say the right thing at the right time, let, let's not react like Nebuchadnezzar with this great anger and, and very furious. And, and just, just be calm about it. Be reasonable about our expectations. Uh, if I can go back to the marriage idea just for a moment. Uh, a marriage, right, you're going to have disagreements. And, and I'm going to use the word fight, but I use it hesitantly because when I say you're going to fight, I, I'm not condoning that, you know, ding, ding, boom, boom. I'm not, 
I'm not, not that kind of fight, but there are going to be moments that are a little more tense than others. Amen. There are. Don't, and and you, you need not think, oh, I've blown it. I'm not a biblical spouse. Our marriage is falling to pieces because you had an argument. I, I told the married couples the other night, fight the good fight, right? If you're going to fight, and, and you are, uh, at some point, you can't have two grown people living under the same roof for 20, 30, 40 years, and, and you always agree on everything. One of you is not trying. Right? One of you is not trying. Somebody's making the decisions, and the other person that is saying, yes, dear. <laughs> be, be, because it's just two people. Right? At the, I know you're married, but at the end of the day, you're still two people. And the reasonable expectation, you say, but we're Christians and we have the Bible and we should what? Have it all figured out and never mess up and never have. Come on, that's just not a reasonable expectation. So, so be, be careful. I'm not asking you, please, don't, don't run off to the other end with this and set the bar so low. You go, well, you know, the expectation is we are going to mess up, so let's go ahead and mess up. I'm not asking you to put the bar that low. Let's, let's strive, let's press toward the mark, amen, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let's try to do it right, but let's also be reasonable about our expectations. We're going to have some rough spots and bad days. These things are going to happen. Now, as you can see, Nebuchadnezzar, his, uh, his expectations are just way too high, and this has set him up to be a very furious and angry man. Generally, somebody who is going to be unreasonable in their expectations will also be unreasonable with their reactions, right? If they don't know how to set the proper expectation, they're not going to know what to do with their emotions when that expectation is not met. And I think we see this in verse 12. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Okay. Well, hang on just a second, Neb. All your wise men, just, just like that, based on one conversation with them, they're all done. Guys, how quick are you with your temper to jump to the worst possible outcome? Oh, they made me angry. They didn't tell me what I want to hear. That's it! Whoa, man, pump the brakes. Calm down, Neb. There might be another way around this. Verse 13, and the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Now, if I can revisit a point I made last week, this tells me that Daniel and his fellows were already out of training. It, it, again, I know Neb's not being reasonable, but it would have been strange, I think, to seek to kill a second-year student in Chaldean training. Is that, remember what we covered last week? Because I, I don't think Daniel's in training. He's considered a wise man, one of that special group, along with his, his cohorts here. So verse 13, they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the, king of the uh, captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel, explains the story to him. Verse 16, then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. That's, that's the right, this is wisdom, right? It says in verse 14, with counsel and wisdom. Perfect way to handle a guy with a quick temper. If you can 
Talk him into giving you time. Let's not rush to be angry. Let's, not be, sl- let's be slow to wrath, right? Calm down just a bit. Now, there are plenty of verses in the Bible that talk about uh, not being quick to get angry. And I just quoted one, James chapter 1, right? We need to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God, right? So, so we know that. Ecclesiastes, what is it, 7, I think, verse 9, it talks about be not hasty in your spirit to be angry. And I don't know what it is about just humanity. It's not like it's just a, a guy thing or a woman thing or it's just a people thing. Man, it's easy to be quick to get angry. But I'll tell you another thing that comes with anger. Once we get angry, it's very hard to slow down. Because you might be slow to anger, but now that I'm angry, boy, you better get out of my way because, boy, you're just about to go Montezuma and explode on people. And, and that's where Nebuchadnezzar at. He, he's quick, he's unreasonable, quick to get angry, but now that he's angry, why is he being so hasty to kill everybody in his, in his path? And Daniel's point is, hey, can we just call a timeout? Can we just take a few seconds to think about this? Over there in Habakkuk chapter 1, there's a description. You don't have to turn to it. There's a description of the Chaldean people. And it calls them that bitter and hasty nation. Bitter and hasty. They're angry and they're quick to act on their anger. I'm sure all of you have heard this little exercise that people do when they get angry. Count to 10, right? It's amazing how fast we can count when we're angry, right? Oh, I'm angry, one hundred and ten. <laughs> we're there, boom. Now, now, some people think that the trick is just to count to 10, and once you get to 10, the problem will be gone, right? As if counting to 10 magically makes the problem go away. One, two, like the enemy's gonna run away by 10. I, I'm all for the idea, by the way, of counting to 10. Matter of fact, some of you probably go for 100. <laughs> Count to 10,000, I don't know. Count as long as you need until you have a clear-headed thought on how to proceed. That, that's wisdom. Wisdom is stopping to think about something before you do it. That's wisdom. It's, it's thinking about, is this right? And is this wrong? Which path should I choose rather than just, I'm angry, I'm going this way? Calm down. Count to whatever and then say, okay, what, what would be the best way to go about this? When I was a basketball coach, we used to do this all the time, this particular drill. Because I know when we get to the USA tournaments, this all the time happened. Somebody, and I know, maybe not all of you are familiar with basketball, but I think you get the, the point here. It's not just basketball. Somebody has the ball. Now there's five players on each team, right? Somebody has the ball. The other team is going to send what we call a double team, which again, you understand what that is, and sometimes a triple team. And the idea is to make this person panic with the ball. Right? So in, the, in our drills, in order to get ready for this, I would give a guy the ball and put him in a little square and say, you cannot leave the square. You have to stay, stay in this. You can dribble, move around, but you got to be in the square. And I'm going to send two or three guys to just slap and hit and kick and bite and whatever and just foul you until you get used to holding on to the ball with all this pressure going on. And I would, they would have to stay in there until they found a teammate that they could pass the ball to, make a good decision under pressure. Because the temptation is when everybody's in your face and cheating you and slapping and hurting you and this is not what I like and hey, why are you in my space? 
the temptation is, number one, curl up in the fetal position. <laughs> That's not good for a basketball game. And number two, yeah, and just throw the ball anywhere. It doesn't matter. Just get it out of my hands, put it in somebody else's hands so they can get beat up. That's generally how we handle life. I didn't get my way. And immediately this overreaction was just wah! And now you're angry at everybody. Everybody that comes near you, you give them a zinger. You're not kind, you're not patient, and all of a sudden, all that goes out the window. I remember when we, I used to train, do some of this MMA stuff and jiu-jitsu kind of stuff, and I must admit, I really enjoyed that. I went to practice one night. I got there, a couple of our church members were warming up, and it was a man and his son. And it was the strangest warm-up drill I've ever seen. I, I've, I've, in no sport have I ever seen this before. The dad's standing there, and the son, about this far away from him, like this. And the son reached up and whap, slapped his dad as hard as he could. And I went, ooh, ooh, it's on now. It's on now. And then his, I mean, his dad took it. And then his dad, whack. And I thought, whoo, what are we doing in practice tonight? <laughs> I thought, I hope we don't all have to do that. <laughs> and they went back and forth for about 20 seconds just warming each other's cheeks up. <laughs> I mean, Jesus said turn the other cheek, but I've never seen it like that, right? I mean, that was... Wow. You know what they're learning is, is, okay, somebody's hurting you, but now you need to be calm and think about how you react. Not, not, and you're warming up your face to take a, <laughs> to take a right hook. But, but you're learning not to panic when your mind says panic. Because that, there's that fight or flight syndrome, right, that just kicks in as soon as something's going on. Okay, fight or flight. You need to be able to calmly work your way through that and go, okay, whoa, whoa. I'm in a dangerous situation. Somebody's hurting me. How do I get through this? Nebuchadnezzar, a bit of an overgrown child here, he didn't get his way, and he's just going to throw a fit and hurt everybody. Daniel says, ooh, calm down. Give me some time. Let, let's just take a minute and think about this, talk about this. That's great advice. Take some time. Now, verse 16, then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time, and that he would show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Now, here's Daniel's master plan. I'm going to go pray about it. I'm going to go pray about this absolutely ridiculous, impossible request. Rather, you know, do you have some issues with your mother from when you were young? Is that why you're angry? And he didn't try to talk him down from that. He just said, listen, um, Obviously, I can't reason with you. I'm going to go talk to God about this. Give me time. And he trusts prayer so much that he's willing to risk his life for it. You understand? His life is in the balance of his friends. And he says, I, I know God can come through. You know, it really does help to be able to trust in prayer that much. Very, very, amen, very rare pray about. Isn't that great? Guys, do you have people you can pray with? Are there some people in your life you can turn to and say, hey, would you pray with me even right now? I'm going through something and I really need somebody that trusts in prayer, knows how to pray, knows how to get a hold of God. Do you have like that? I hope your spouse is one of them. But you know that's not always the case. But you ought to have some friends. That, that, that know how to pray. In verse 18, 
He says that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then verse 9, when we talk about praying and claiming the promises, I've, I've often found that people struggle to put those two things together, right? Maybe you're familiar with the verbiage. You've heard somebody say that. When you pray, claim the promises of God. But how exactly do you do that? So, Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 20. I thought somebody else had an idea on it. <laughs> look at Deuteronomy chapter 29. Now, I, obviously, we don't have the nuts and bolts of Daniel's prayer meeting. So I'm just going to give you an idea of what he might have prayed. Daniel 29 and verse 29. If you're Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you're getting down to pray, I wonder what that would have sounded like. Can I just mention to you, one of the best ways to learn how to pray is to get involved in a prayer meeting with other people that know how to pray. As a young Christian, I cannot tell you how much that meant to me, to be in the room listening to other people that know how to get a hold of God. And guys, it's more than just listening to them. You feel something going on. You, you feel the Lord step into that place. You know in the book of Acts where it talks about how the disciples came together to pray and the place was shaken. Now I can't say I've ever felt the ground move, but I have felt my heart move. I have felt my body tremble because in some prayer meetings God just got so real. Now listen, I'm not saying that prayer doesn't work unless you have a feeling or unless the ground moves, okay? I'm just saying when you get around other people that know how to pray, it's just nice to be in the room when it's happening. But then you learn from that. You pick up on that. And you hope that it rubs off on you. On Thursday nights, we pray together as a church. And I, th I think that's a wonderful thing to do. We ought to continue to pray together as a church. But can I encourage you, find two friends, three friends. Find four or five friends. Say, hey, let's get together and pray on a Saturday evening. Why, I, and, and guys, I'm not against having a braai and other sorts of fellowship. Please, by all means, uh, play games, watch a show, uh, braai, uh, you know, do, do whatever you feel like doing within the realm of righteousness, but why not put some prayer in there while you're at it? S spend some time together talking to the Lord. Now, I'm sure, you know, as these four guys get down to pray, they look at each other and they go, Daniel, you sure this is going to work? Daniel looks at those guys and says, what else are we going to do? We have nowhere else to turn but God, but God's never let us down before. Now, see, Daniel, he, he's used to being in a position, and, and his buddies, right? Let's go for 10 days eating only the pulse and the water. Remember that? Let's try it 10 days. Let's give it time, and let's see God come through. Right? He has seen this happen before. He knows that God can come through. Now he's asking something even bigger. God, reach down into Nebuchadnezzar's mind, grab that dream and put it into mine. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look at Daniel and say, are you sure God can do this? Well, if anybody can, our God can. All right, but this is a secret thing, Daniel. I mean, no one knows. The king is not even telling us what the dream is. Are you sure? Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Daniel would look at those guys and say, yeah, but you know what, guys? I know it's a secret thing, 
but I know the owner of all the secret things. We're about to go talk to him for a while. And if anybody can tell us what that secret thing is, not even Nebuchadnezzar can tell us what it is. God can. And they believed that the God of the secret things was able to reveal it. So as they get down to pray the Bible and claim the promises, they're getting down and saying, God, you said that the secret things belong to you. So we know we're in the right place. This is where knowing your Bible is going to not just beef up, but make your prayer life what it ought to be. Because if you go in not having read any of the Bible, not knowing anything about the God of the Bible, which you get from the Bible, right? If you don't, if you don't have that knowledge, it makes it very awkward to have a conversation with him. You don't know what to expect on the other end of this, but Daniel would. So he'd say, God, I, the secret things belong to you, but the thing, those things which are revealed belong unto us. So Lord, I know that there are secrets you haven't told us everything, but I know that you can reveal them. And then take your Bible, come to Psalm chapter 44. Now, obviously, this will work in any place in the Bible, but the book of Psalms is really great for this because David wrote much of the Psalms as a prayer. You're even going to find some of these psalms at the end of the chapter, at the beginning. It says a prayer of David. Psalm chapter 90 is a prayer of Moses. So these are prayers that are set to music. So if you want to, wouldn't it be something to pray with David? Come on, guys, wouldn't that be something? If David stepped in the room and said, hey, I'm going to go outside and have a prayer meeting. Any of you want to join me? (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) Twice. (laughs) Sign me up both times. But, but that is what we get to do. We have his prayers written out. So we can not only learn from them, but we can duplicate them in some cases. Verse number 21, Psalm 44, 21, Shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Now if I'm Daniel, and I know my Bible, and you know Daniel knows his Bible, right? He knows Deuteronomy. He's familiar with the book of Psalms. He's probably aware of this. He's thinking, God, you know the secrets of the heart. And and he's getting down there to pray going, God, please, you can search this out. You know the heart. Please, Lord, reach down into Neb's heart and show me something. Look at Psalm 25. Psalm 25 and verse 5. Can we start at verse number 4? Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. I think that's always an applicable prayer. Lead me, verse 5, lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. It's not as if they step into the prayer closet And two minutes later, they step out with the answer. They would step in and and know, Lord, you can lead me. And if I have to wait a while, that's all right. I'm going to wait on you. That's okay. You don't owe me an immediate answer, Lord. Take your time. It's not going to hurt you to spend a few extra minutes with the Lord. Right? In, In the throne room. With all the other stuff we got going on in life, it's very nice to get a break from that. 
And where better to take that break than at the foot of the throne? Look at Psalm 86. Maybe you've heard me mention the name before. There was a great saint of God named Lester Roloff. He uh, did quite a few things for the Lord. Get Psalm 86, verse 17. Lester Roloff had a a ministry called the Reclamation Ranch there in Texas. And uh, he helped hundreds, if not thousands, of of troubled people that got arrested, come out of juvenile delinquent situations, sometimes orphanages. It was... He, he helped a lot of people. Sometimes people would be sentenced, you know, uh, condemned in court, and instead of going to prison, they'd send them to the roll-off homes just to get their life straightened out. And once you got there, no TV, no magazines. All you could have is Bible and singing and, and church and then Bible and singing and church and quite a ministry. A lot of people got help. Brother Roloff had a uh, very, I won't say famous, but very prolific uh, radio program. Uh, I think he called it the family altar, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, He would preach on the radio every day. But how do you prepare a sermon every day? It's a sermon every day just for the radio. And then he'd preach in his chapel every day for hundreds, you know, a few hundred people that he's ministering to. Then he has a church every Sunday. I mean, he's a busy guy. So he would get down on his knees, open up his Bible, And he would read a verse and then pray over it, read a verse and then pray over it, read a verse and pray over it. He read his Bible through over a hundred times like that. He would read it and then pray it. Read it, pray it. And that's where he would get his sermons. He would get his sermons on his knees and then get up and go preach it on the radio. (laughs) Because he just didn't have time to prepare any other way. And, And the man was loaded. Wow, did that guy have some outstanding stuff. Now you say, well, I'm not a preacher. Don't have to be. Here's the reason I shared that story with you. You got a problem you're going through? You need some answers? God has them. You might have to search a little while and wait a little while. Get down and go, okay, God, there's a verse. Let God speak to you and then pray that verse. And talk to God about what he just said. And, and, and keep going bit by bit, little by little, until you get to the part that answers your, your problem. Say, I'm struggling with this particular sin or this particular temptation. Okay, find you about 10 verses that deal with that and get that Bible open and then pray over those verses. Say, God, here's what you said you would do to help me with this problem. Here's what you told me to do about it. God, I need grace to put this into practice and pray over that. And put your Bible reading and your prayer together. Right? Because I I seriously doubt Daniel and his his fellows just stepped into the prayer closet going, okay, God, we've never heard of anybody having an answer to prayer, but we're just going to try this. <laughs> he, knew, he knew this is how you get things done. Psalm 86, verse 17. Show me a token for good, that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because thou, Lord, has holpen me. That's an old way of saying helped me. Has holpen me and comforted me. If I'm Daniel... If I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm hanging on to verse 17. And I'm saying, God, just like David years ago, I'm asking, show me a token for good that they which hate me, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to kill me, may see it and be ashamed. God, bring the king down and exalt your holy name. Because thou, Lord, has helped me and comforted me. I know you're going to come through. You've helped me in the past 
Now I need you to step up and do something that will be a testimony unto your grace in this situation as well. Come back to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, and let's finish up in verse number 19. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So he's, he's gone to sleep. He has the dream. Now I'm not, I, he has a dream. I assume that God somehow put a PS in the dream, goes, oh, by the way, this was Neb's dream. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe there was a title before the dream started uh, featuring Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. And then, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how he figured all that out, but he did. And he wakes up and he blesses the God of heaven. You know why? Because I didn't do this. Daniel knows this wasn't me. I didn't figure this out. And when he steps in, verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And for the next several verses, and this is something we'll spend more time on next time we cover it, Daniel just testifies. He just stands up and praises God and blesses God for a while because God has done something that only God can do. And every one of us need to see God do some things that only God can do. We need to see some of those mountains moved into the sea, right? The, the sycamine tree plucked up and thrown into the sea. But, but listen, here's where I'm ending my lesson. You're never going to see it if you don't ask. We have not because we ask not. Let Daniel's story bolster your appreciation for prayer. Say, God, the same God of Daniel, the same God of Elijah, the God of Moses, etc., etc., you're my God. And I may not be as important in the ministry as those guys. I may not make the big difference that those guys made, but you're my God, and I'm your child. And you said you're listening to me. You said that if I come in Christ's name, that I can expect something to happen. So Lord, here I am asking for the mountain to move. And then believe that God can move that mountain according to his will. All, this is not just a Daniel thing. All of us have access to this same God. Let's all stand if you would, please. All right, I've, I've taught until the rain came down. So. Father, thank you this morning that as we approach you, we know that the same God that revealed that secret to Daniel is the same God that sent His Son to die for the world, who is the same God that sent the Spirit to bring us to Christ. The same God that's listening now, loves us, cares about us. Father, what a great comfort 